Good morning and welcome to Echoes of Calvary. This is your host, Greg Sweeting. Thank you for opening your home to us this morning. I invite you to now open your hearts and worship with us as we share from the Word of God. Stay with us as we share comments and illustrations with a spiritual application, present special music to call us to worship, and in a few minutes, Pastor Alan Lee will come to share insights from Scripture and explain how to apply God's Word that we might grow to be complete in Christ. From the porch of the cottage I was staying in on Green Turtle, Kiabaco, I was able to see a church steeple toward the west as the road followed the water's edge around. The view is wonderful and overlooks the entrance to the small harbour of New Plymouth. As I looked toward the church, I could see a white statue of what appeared to be a man with outstretched arms at the edge of the churchyard looking toward the entrance of the harbour. The symbolism was great. Obviously, the white statue was meant to represent the Lord Jesus. In a way, he is bestowing his blessing on all those who enter the harbour on their way to or in their exit from the settlement. I don't know how long the statue has been there, but its position was chosen well. Sitting on the porch, the birds were all over and around me. The boats are moored safely to several docks in view, including one large vessel properly outfitted with the appropriate rigging for fishing. I'm told that she's a permanent fixture and only leaves during the height of the crawfish season. Like ripples making their way onto the small beach nearby, from each boat that passed. Coconut trees fringe the little peninsula in front of us. They tell us that the couple of turtles frequent the harbour and the occasional dolphin passes by. What an idyllic setting. It is a real blessing to be able to sit with a cup of coffee in the early morning and bask in such splendour, appreciating the handiwork of a loving Heavenly Father who bestows such beauty on us who really don't deserve it. I'm thankful to be able to enjoy it, though, with my wife. Back to the white statue of Jesus in the churchyard. This white figure made out of some kind of inanimate material does not possess life. Of course not. It has no intelligence. It cannot think, speak, or actually bestow real blessings on anyone or anything entering the harbour. It's only symbolic, representative, made to suggest... I'm sure over the years the mariners who passed through that harbour on their way to fish or transport goods and materials have taken comfort in the knowledge that there is a real God that is interested in them. It is to this God that they pray for a safe journey and a successful fishing trip. And certainly it is to real God that they turn when they encounter hurricanes or find themselves in treacherous seas or accidents during their trips. The sea can be so beautiful and captivating, comforting and serene. But the sea can also be a raging and fearsome force, destroying and awesome, devastating life and property. Through it all, that statue stands with outstretched arms, offering just what people need in their times of need. Comfort when life is hard, joy when life is happy, a source of refuge when needed, and a source of comfort when we are at peace. The thing to remember is that the Lord is there when we need him, and he is there when we don't even think we need him. But we shouldn't ignore him until we do need him. I'm talking about the real Lord, the one who lives 
inside of those who have given their hearts to him in faith. And now with this message for today, here is Senior Pastor Emeritus, Alan Lee. Greetings. We want to thank you for tuning in once again to Acres of Calvary. In our last broadcast, we considered the seventh beatitude, and we emphasize that in keeping with Jesus' profile of a true disciple, as described in the Beatitudes, a true disciple is a believer who is committed to making peace both between God and man and man and man. We also pointed out that in actual fact, Jesus' description of a true disciple is a believer who is like him, who is Christ-like in every aspect of life, his attitude, his motivation, his behavior. In other words, the totality of one's being and personality. This is described in detail in the Beatitudes as recorded in Matthew chapter 5. Now, the final Beatitude tells us what is the result of that kind of a lifestyle, that is, of being a true disciple, of being Christ-like in our lifestyle. Now, isn't it true that all believers pray to be Christ-like? Don't you pray that? that you be Christ-like? But I wonder how many of us would pray that prayer if we really understood what it truly means to be Christian. Notice, I said to be Christian, not to be a Christian. I emphasize this because the term Christian or a Christian has become so diluted today that almost everyone in our hemisphere clarify themselves as being a Christian. However, to be Christian means to be Christ-like, not merely a church-goer or be a member of a church. Now, usually, when we think of being Christ-like or Christ-likeness, we think of love, of gentleness, of kindness and compassion, patience, forgiveness, and so on. And we think about a host of positive virtues and characteristics. We think of attitudes and loving actions and responses to our Christian life. Very rarely do we think of negative responses to being a truly Christian and living a truly Christian lifestyle. But according to the founder, the originator, and the perfect model of Christianity, the results and responses to a Christ-like life is a part of the composite and profile of a true believer. In other words, if you truly are Christ-like, you're going to have this particular characteristic demonstrated in your life as well. It's an automatic response of the first seven Beatitudes and the characteristics we had looked at. If all of those seven attitudes or characteristics are true in our life, then this one, this eighth Beatitude, will automatically be present as well. Remember, the Beatitudes are a composite of a genuine believer in Christ. It is the profile of a true believer living on the cutting edge of discipleship, living a life for Christ that makes a difference, setting standards rather than adapting to those imposed upon us by an ungodly culture and society, being transformers, in other words, rather than conformers. This is why this final beatitude is perhaps the most significant of all the traits of a believer given in this passage by Jesus Christ on the Sermon 
on the mount. It is the ultimate mark, as it were, the benchmark of a person who is truly Christ-like in his or her life. Now, what is it? What is this characteristic? Is it love? Is it patience? Is it forgiveness? No, my friends, it is none of these things. It is persecution, something that millions of believers are facing today all around the world, but especially in Islamic countries. Do you know that it has been determined that more Christians are being killed for their faith in Christ today in this century than in all past centuries combined? Now, all of the other traits described in the Beatitudes are a part of being a believer. But what Jesus is saying here is that as far as the unsaved world is concerned, the result of exhibiting such traits will be persecution, not applause, opposition, not support, rejection, not acceptance. Think of Jesus Christ himself. He lived the perfect Christ-like life, didn't he? What was the result? Very few accepted him. The majority rejected him. They ridiculed him. They persecuted him. They hated him. And yes, they finally killed him. My friends, this is a concept that is taught in these Beatitudes by Jesus Christ. To live like him is to suffer like him. It comes automatically. It's a part of the package. Now, we don't preach this today, do we? Much less do we preach the truth about the need for suffering as a believer. Rather, we have projected the idea that to be a successful Christian is to be accepted and sought after by the world and have all the money we need. We have everything that is comfortable and everybody likes us and loves us. Church membership has therefore become a mark of dignity and pride, almost a status symbol today, rather than being an indication of someone who has committed him or herself to living like their despised, rejected leader, Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying that the true way to measure our Christ-likeness is not how many souls have you led to him, although we must win souls, not how many church services we attend, although we should attend church services, not how much money do we give to the church, although we must give to the church, but rather, Jesus is saying that the ultimate measure of being faithful to him and to living like him is how much are we being persecuted for him. That's why these Beatitudes are so radical in these days of ease and the fulfillment of personal selfish pleasures. They completely upset the status quo idea of Christianity and shows that there is a great deal of difference between being Christian and being a Christian in today's understanding of that term. Listen to the words of the Master himself, as he states it in Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. Quote, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you, because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. End of quote. Notice first, then, that these verses teach, first, that persecution 
is the authenticating mark of the true disciple. Let me say it again. Persecution is the authenticating mark of true discipleship. You see, persecution is the natural result of being a peacemaker, as we looked at last time in verse 9. Not all attempts at peacemaking succeeds. Some people will refuse to be at peace with us, and so they will revile, slander, oppose, and persecute us. Secondly, persecution is placed as the culmination of the Beatitudes. In other words, persecution both rounds off and culminates the spiritual characteristics of the genuine believer. It is an essential mark of being like Christ. But finally, the passage shows us that persecution is the normal experience of a true disciple. Notice I says I say normal, not abnormal or unordinary. Persecution is the normal experience of a true disciple. Notice what John says about this in John 15. If the world hates you, just as John referring to the uh, statements of Jesus Christ. Jesus speaking then. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were in the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. He also says the same thing in Philippians 1.29. He says, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Then again, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. My friends, the scriptures are filled with these kinds of teachings. You can go to 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 23. You can go to 1 Peter 4, verse 14, and you have the same truth. In fact, listen to Peter in chapter 4, verse 14. If you be approached for the name of Christ, happy are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And on their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. In other words, through your suffering. But something else. Persecution identifies us with Christ in his resurrection power. Scriptures are clear. Not only is persecution a mark of Christ's likeness, but it also identifies us with Christ in his resurrection power. Listen to the apostle in Philippians 3 verse 10. Paul says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Notice now, and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Persecution identifies us with the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. But now something else that is very important here. Christian persecution is the result of a specific cause. Verse 10 says it's first for the sake of righteousness. In other words, for living righteously, 
not living sinfully or foolishly. Verse 11 says, it's because of me. In other words, it's for being Christ-like. It's for living like him. It is not persecution due to our own foolishness, our lack of wisdom or sin or personal prejudice or our repulsive behavior or selfishness. No, it is for Christ's sake. It is because of him. It's not because of our sake. Notice, the text specifically states that it comes because believers are falsely accused. It's not because they are correctly accused, but falsely accused. This is how Peter puts it in 1 Peter 4, verses 15 and 16, quote, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief, speaking to believers now, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's business. Yet, if any man suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. In other words, persecution that Jesus is talking about here is persecution that comes because we are living like him, not because we are living an ungodly or disobedient lifestyle. Something else, though, that we must be reminded of here, persecution against Christians for being Christ-like is the natural result of the clash between two distinctly opposing value systems in our world today. And those systems are the system of Christ and the system of the world. We cannot, my friends, live a truly authentic Christian lifestyle and not be opposed by the non-Christian. It is impossible for that to happen. We cannot live a truly authentic Christian lifestyle and not be opposed by the non-Christian, and unfortunately, even sometimes, by the carnal Christian. But now, how are we to respond to Christian persecution? How are we to respond to those who persecute us for Christ's sake? Verse 12 tells us, notice what it says now. It doesn't say run away. It doesn't say to pray to get out of the situation even. It says instead, rejoice and be glad. Not retaliate or retreat, but rejoice. Now this phrase, rejoice and be glad, literally leads jump for joy. Leap for joy when you've been persecuted for Jesus' sake. We are to leap for joy. Why? Because we can glorify God in this situation. Peter even commands it. He says that when we face persecution for Christ's sake, let him glorify God. It's a command. That is what we are to do when we are persecuted for Christ's sake. Glorify God by rejoicing in the fact. Now, why should we rejoice? Well, first of all, because it authenticates our salvation. It tells us who we really are. The passage says, because this is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, it assures us of heaven. It tells us where we are going. But it also assures, of a, it assures us of a reward when we get where we are going for being what we are. Believers who are persecuted for the sake of Christ. Notice what the text says. Great is your reward in heaven. It doesn't say great is your reward on earth. 
Being persecuted for Christ don't guarantee you're going to have good health. It doesn't guarantee you're going to have a big home or big TV or big car or big boat. No, no, no. What it does guarantee you of is the great reward in heaven. Peter says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trail which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice, that's the command, inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's suffering. See, we are partakers of Christ's suffering when we are persecuted for him. That's an amazing, glorious statement. Notice he says, inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. What a fantastic promise that is. But persecution for Christ's sake also associates us now with those who have already been approved of God. It says in verse 11, For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we are in good company. We are in the company of those who are named in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Now listen carefully now. We are not to look for persecution and go around with a false martyr's complex. But rather, we are simply to live for Christ and to be like Christ. When we do this, persecution will look for us, and it will find us if we live like Christ. In fact, I say again, an evidence of being Christ-like is when persecution finds you. Let me ask you a couple of questions as we close. Are you living on the cutting edge of discipleship? Are you experiencing any kind of persecution from any source whatsoever, purely for the sake of Christ? Are you deliberately compromising your convictions to alleviate persecution? Are you trying to eliminate loneliness because you refuse to marry an unsaved person? Are you experiencing a lack of income because you refuse to be a dishonest business person? Are you being ridiculed because you don't do what your peers do or go where they go? If you are, then, my friends, Jesus says, rejoice. Now, that's radical, but that's being Christ-like. The words of the hymn, May Christ Be Seen in Me, should be the prayers of all believers in Christ. It is the prayer that asks for Jesus' profile of a true believer, as depicted in these Beatitudes. The prayer is asking these characteristics to be manifested in the life of the believer. Let me quote this poem for you at this time. It's called, May Christ Be Seen in You, and is written by Lois Dehoff. It goes this way, O Lord, I give myself to Thee, all that I possess, I lay aside my sinful pride and claim thy righteousness. My will lies shattered at thy feet. I pray thy will be done. My only plea to live for thee and magnify thy son. Oh, may I count all gain but loss, save as to thee tis gain. Let me not shun the promised cross, nor shirk to suffer pain. Then lead me, Lord, up Calvary's hill, forth to the cross with thee, and there pour out my life with God, as thou didst, Lord, for me. O humbly, 
May I serve thee, Lord, as in thy will I tread, and may I live anew in Christ as risen from the dead. Then closely walking by thy side, may love flow out through me, that those whom thou shalt lead my way may too find life in thee. May Christ be seen in me, O Lord, hear thou my earnest plea. O take me, fill me, use me, Lord, till Christ be seen in me. That, my friends, is the profile of a true disciple. That is what Jesus Christ is talking about in the Beatitudes. Let me ask you a question then as I close. How does it fit you as a professing Christian? As always, this is Senior Pastor Emeritus Alan Lee saying, Sila, think and act on these things. You have been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship service begins this morning at 11 o'clock in the sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We extend an invitation to you to join us on these occasions. If you would like to contact the church or Pastor Lee, address your letters to Echoes of Calvary, Post Office Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And so we come to an end of this broadcast. I invite you to think about the message this morning. Consider the one who is our Savior and Lord. Grow to be complete in Him. And remember, as echoes from Calvary stir in your heart, keep listening for that shout, Maranatha, the Lord is coming soon. There forevermore to stay. Great command is promised, he will surely come again. I am listening every listening moment for the mighty trumpet sound. What a time we'll have together when the saints shall leave the ground and not toiling will be happen in a moment, Jesus Christ could come again. I am listening every moment for the mighty trumpet sound. What a time we'll have together when the saints shall leave the ground and our toiling will be in a moment Jesus Christ could come again